Hello, and thank you for joining LTC NAC Chat, a podcast brought to you by the American Association of Post-Acute Care Nursing, APACN. I'm your host, Amy Stewart, Vice President of Education and Certification Strategy for APACN. I'm here today with Renee Kinder, Executive Vice President of Clinical Services with APACN's Diamond Partner, Broad River Rehab. We will be sharing information about our participation on the technical expert panel for the cross-setting function measure development and some news about the future unified payment model. Welcome, Renee. Thank you, Amy. Happy to be here. I'm happy to have you. How did you feel about our time on the technical expert panel for the cross-setting function measure development and the subsequent report from Acumen? Yes, and it's quite a mouthful to get through the formal name of the TEP that we had the opportunity to work on. I have a lot of feelings about the TEPs. I appreciate the fact that in this era where we see CMS and other payers aiming to have a greater level of transparency to providers, a greater transparency to beneficiaries, in addition to their family members and loved ones, that There are a number of active TEPs presently and other TEPs that are in the nomination process. So before we get into content, if TEP is a new acronym to any listeners, TEPs are technical expert panels that CMS will often convene for different regulatory areas. And what is so nice about them is that Much of the change that we see occurring in the industry does not happen behind closed doors. It does not happen in silo. They often happen through many of these work groups and TEPs, and so it gives everyone an eye into what is coming. And I appreciated our opportunity for this TEP because it really is looking at function. And we've all been wondering about what is going to be the functional outcome measure that we are going to see as a potential metric of success and care for the post-acute care spectrum? And so this TEP, there were 15 of us, I believe, multiple disciplines, folks from across the nation, expertise in SNF and LTAC and ERF, In skilled nursing facilities, we had nurses and we had researchers and physical therapists, occupational therapists and speech language pathologists. So I was excited, reached out to you after the report was published from our January meeting and look forward to discussing a little bit more today, the findings and potentially how people can put the findings into some proactive action. To that end, what should providers prepare for in outcomes? I would say first and foremost, if you have not read the TEP report, it's only 32 pages. So take the time to review the report because depending on your setting, you're going to have different actionable items that you're going to want to take to your teams in order to further prepare for the future. And as an expert in coding, I'm sure you often say, as I do, that our medical record is only as good as what we document and what we code. And we have seen this to be true throughout the multitude of TEPs that have occurred in the past five to 10 years, even going back to 
the TEP that helped to develop PDPM. So in that TEP, the same group was used, Acumen. And what's important to know about where researchers, CMS, and Acumen start is with the data. And so if we want to have a positive influence on current reimbursement, if we want to have the opportunity to provide guidance for what the future looks like, we have to code correctly. And if you remember, I believe the second day that we were together as a group, we spent a significant amount of time not discussing the different areas of self-care and mobility item set, but looking at the areas that were ANA or activities not attempted codes. So I would say that we can all agree that there's going to be an appropriate clinical time to use the ANA. And so for reference for all listeners, the ANA is going to be any time that you use the seven patient refused, the nine non-applicable or not attempted and the patient did not perform this activity prior to the current illness, 10, which is not attempted due to the environmental limitations, the EG for that is lack of equipment, weather constraints, or the 88 not attempted due to medical condition or safety concern. And then, of course, any time that you choose to skip or dash. So in looking at this report and looking at the impact of activities not assessed and what we can do in regards to due diligence in providing CMS and Acumen and others with the appropriate information to create a true cross-setting post-acute care outcome is to make sure that our coding is accurate and to fully engage the entire interdisciplinary team. You know, that's one of the beauties of the TEP is that we had all of these different disciplines across the scope of care. So for one care provider, they may consider the patient to have a medical condition or a safety concern that perhaps is not appropriate for all of these self-care or mobility item sets, but it's important to engage everyone in that conversation so that our data is as holistic as possible and so that we are able to code really to the highest level of accuracy and what we often say in the therapy world is that we are practicing at the top of your license in regards to how we can best meet patient needs. And again, read the full report is what I would recommend to all listeners. But when we got into the discussion of the impact of gaps in coding, there are a variety of different ways that may be used to resolve this, including recoding everything to dependent, which is what was initially used, using a rescale model, using methods of statistical imputation, which I found rather fascinating because in that attempt, they look at similar patients. So they look at patients with similar demographics, um, that may be age, it may be comorbidities, and then impute for patient A, who may be similar to patient B, a score, which I found fascinating. And then a couple of other alternative suggestions, including a bootstrapping analysis to obtain bias error estimates or some type of incentive stimulation analysis. So a lot of new terms that I learned 
during the tip, but I just kept sitting there thinking, wow, if we just did a better job of coding on the front end, we would not have to have all of these conversations about solving this problem. Couldn't agree with you more. I was surprised at how much time we did spend on those ANA codes. And if there was one thing I would tell listeners today is go back, reread the RAI manual and ensure that when you are using those codes that you are using the correct code and you mentioned those codes, so that's very helpful. What about social risk factors? Yes, so we try to look at the silver linings that we've had through COVID. And one is appreciating, I think, the differences in the patients that we serve that may not be clearly identified in areas such as NTA. I also think that there's a bit of a blessing that we had a new reimbursement model such as PDPM being implemented during the public health emergency because we were already in the mindset of appreciating the medical complexities of those that we serve. And social risk factors really takes us to the next level of looking at what makes everyone that we serve unique. And then an acronym you're going to hear is SRFs. Social risk factors also, in my opinion, force us to increase our appreciation of care settings outside of our unique silo, which is what's going to be needed to really move into a cross-setting outcome measurement and also to move us into potentially a unified payment model. So the social risk factors were actually published when you read the report in a conceptual model tied to functional outcomes. And at the end of the day, what you will notice in reading the report is that we're pretty limited, unfortunately, in areas where we truly have a data source to collect this information presently. We have also seen numerous RFIs in areas tied to social risk factors through the rulemaking season across all settings in the past 12 months. So to give you an idea of the SRFs where we have a metric, they would include dual eligibility, race and ethnicity, neighborhood deprivation, and the rural nature of where someone resides. However, areas that are noted to impact outcomes, areas that are noted to impact an individual's ability to transition from one setting to another, to be successful with return to community, to have prevented rehospitalizations, include a multitude of other areas, including socioeconomic position, income, education, wealth, cultural content, sexual orientation and gender identity, social relationships, marital status, social support, residential and community context. So these are all of the additional areas that we know. Again, let's consider that Acumen is a group of statisticians. All of this is based on their research, their evidence, and what we know to be true in areas that we need to increase accuracy of knowing those that we serve 
in order to provide them the best functional outcome. And in my opinion, this really ties into a fully person-centered approach and knowing the individuals that we serve as the drivers of care, not simply the receivers of care, because these are some more personal areas that we're not maybe fully comfortable with discussing, but at the end of the day may very well have a greater impact on return to community, return to least restrictive environment, ability to participate in their prior activities of daily living than that primary diagnosis for which they were admitted. So was nice to, I believe our third day maybe, we spent a significant amount of time delving into this, talking about impact across settings, and it was nice to see the level of focus and the conceptual model that came out of it. I agree. So let's move on to our last topic, and that is the unified payment model. I found the RTI report to Congress, Unified Payment for Medicare Covered Post-Acute Care, interesting. Most specifically, I am intrigued by the prototype of the unified PAC-PPS framework. What are your thoughts on this proposed framework? Yes. So this report dropped maybe a week before I saw our TEP report published. It's a little bit longer. It's around 106 pages, and it was tucked into an MLN Matters email of all places. (laughs) So (laughs) I wish that it had received a bit more focus because we've been waiting on this for a couple of years now. There's been a TEP working on UPAC, and we've really not seen as much information coming from them as we have other areas. Within this report, they did, similar to the social risk factor outcome model, there's a prototype within this report. And it begins logically with, if we're going to talk UPAC, it begins with where is the individual initially admitted? Is it IRF? Is it SNF? Is it home health? Or is it LTAT? And then we move from that into clinical groups. So is it a medical diagnosis group? Is it a rehab and function related group? Or is it related to some type of another clinical complexity? And then from that area, we move into, and this is where my mind starts to interweave the two TEPs together and try to problem solve what this could all look like at the end of the day. Because after we determine the clinical group is where we move into the motor functioning group. And so the areas that were discussed in the cross-setting function measure development from self-care and mobility are now folded into this motor function case mix group after we determine, to simplify it, primary medical condition or primary diagnosis. And they give them two tiers. Is it a low, is it a medium, or is it a high? And the higher functioning are the folks that have a greater level of independence. Now the next tier moves us into what I really consider to be the social risk factor conversation. So we see this included throughout both TEPs, and it's looking at higher cost outliers. 
It's looking at an adjustment for rural providers, and it's looking at comorbidities. The most important take home that I also saw in this UPAC TEP was the conversation around patient navigator. And that was a relatively new concept. We see them used in various care settings, largely in community-based settings, because we know it can be daunting and it can be overwhelming for patients, family members, loved ones to navigate the post-acute care setting. Um, So I also found it refreshing that that was significantly reviewed. There's also a prototype for the patient navigator and the fact that these could be used for services within 90 days for beneficiaries. It also helps to drive that beneficiary centeredness and noting that that is a high quality care delivery. So as a takeaway, I would, you know, challenge folks, print both reports. They're not long kind of try to layer these different models on top of each other and then see how you could integrate some of these practices that are known to increase success for those we serve into your present day because these changes are likely coming. Not tomorrow, but I would say in the near future, we're going to see some shifts. That's great advice. Thank you, Renee. Thank you for taking the time to share your expertise with our audience as well. Thank you for having me. Listeners, thank you for joining us today. For more resources and tools for the Nurse Assessment Coordinator, please visit our website at www.aapacn.org. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the LTC NACCHAT podcast. Heard the news about how you can improve quality care and increase efficiency with ability? Ability offers a range of applications to simplify the complexity of healthcare, allowing organizations of all types and sizes to spend more time on care and less time manually collecting, analyzing, and reporting data. This allows you to remain in compliance while making data-driven decisions that benefit residents. With Ability, your facility can improve resident outcomes, optimize reporting data, enhance reimbursements, and much, much more. Discover what Ability has to offer at AbilityNetwork.com slash a pack-in.